Hey everybody, welcome to episode 119 of Literary Disco, Lincoln in the Bardo. On today's episode, he's one of our very favorite short story writers, and this past year, he published his first novel to almost universal acclaim, Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders Gets the Disco Treatment. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey guys. Hello. Hey. How you doing? Oh, great. Are we in 2018? Are we recording this in 2018? Oh, we are. We're in 2018 right now. Oh my God. 27. Guys, 2018 has been amazing so far. This has been such a great year. Oh my God. (laughs) The things I've seen and done. I feel like by 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 claiming you're in the future right now, just for our listeners. You think this is what's jinxing us? Yeah, I'm gonna get. You know, I'm in Los Angeles where I'm gonna get nuked by North Korea any minute, and it could. And then this recording will just be out there in the world, and you guys go, and it's been so great. 2018 is (laughs) awesome. Look, I feel like you can't put a whammy on something that's already been whammied. So 2017 was like the giant whammy from hell. 2018 can only be the bounce back. Mr. Trump tweets, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. We're living in the future already. Like, everything's better. I've lost 10 pounds. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> feeling pretty slim. Uh, Gonna start that. Just a new dedication to fitness has been great these last... Uh, two weeks. Three, four, five weeks now that we're in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, running. It's a lot of running in 2018. <laughs> Julia's baby can talk. Yeah. She's huge. She's in graduate school. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Ryder, incidentally, just got hired to star in a Hallmark movie with Chris. <laughs> in January, that's... They start up the holiday, the Hallmark holiday movies in January, so they're done. Hey, man, that... The Hallmark machine is a... It churns them out, man. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> So right, everything so that we talked about in 2017 has come true in 2018. <laughs> All right, let's talk about George Saunders, guys. Um, yes. Yay. So let's do that. I'm sure we've mentioned him on the show before because as far as I know, he's he's one of all three of our favorite authors. Is that, is that fair yes, to say? Yes, absolutely. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. he's one of those yes. legendary guys who's who's managed to, to carve out his own unique style. It's I, I, speculative fiction. Sometimes science fictiony, sometimes magical, always just strange and well written and funny and poignant. Um, but this is the first time taking on a, a novel, um, and I didn't really know what to expect. And it, whatever my expectations were, it went beyond. <laughs> uh, so this yeah, is a book. It's, yeah. uh, Lincoln and the Bardo is based on a historical fact. I guess during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln's son died. His son, Willie, uh, most likely of typhoid fever. And apparently it is true that the president visited his body uh, a couple times on the night that he was interred. Um, So the whole novel takes place in the course of this one evening. And it's set in the bardo, which is a term that Saunders borrows from Buddhism. It's a purgatory state of sorts where the dead 
are lingering over and around their graves and they don't, they're either in denial or unconvinced that they are dead. Um, and then we should sort of like the, Palm Springs. <laughs> that's or most of Florida. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's not like Boca. Have you ever been to wow, Boca? Wow, guys. <laughs> we should also mention that the book is written in an incredibly strange style. It's um, uh, each chapter is is either historical sources being quoted um, from the human realm, or they're sort of like observations being made. Uh, almost like in the form of an oral history by the ghosts or the souls mm-hmm. that are that are stuck in the bardo. So it's it's really this strange collection of quotations. Um, what do you guys think? Who wants to go well, first? Well, let me ask you a question. I, yeah. Can I ask a question? Because I didn't actually look to find out if this is true or not. Are the historical quotes real? No. I believe I had some to are, them too. and I think some They're are and some aren't. I think really? Because I yeah. looked up a couple authors. I like, like halfway through the book, I was like, "Come on, did he really make up all of these, or did he make?" And so I looked up a couple, and they <laughs> all brought me back to George Saunders. So I don't think many of them wow. are real because he also doesn't have any citations in the back of the book, or I don't know. Well, but he does cite the. Uh, it, they must be made up. I can only imagine they're made up. Okay, um, well, we should Google around up. on this. <laughs> and, you know, we, this is something so again listeners if you're if you're trudging along in year six of literary disco this is the level of pre-show prep that you <laughs> have come to appreciate <laughs> that you right. don't appreciate none is but i think that that's kind of well no but i think that that's kind of the point it doesn't matter that, actually yeah it doesn't matter and what what it, that he's he's good enough at creating fake quotations that you believe them uh enough right to and and, and you realize quickly that the quotations themselves and the names don't matter. So you kind of, I mean, this book takes like, I would say 20 pages for you to figure out what the hell is going on. And in the course of those 20 pages, you've actually absorbed a lot of information. And I think an an entire worldview, this sort of, you know, this Rashomon idea that everybody has their own perspective on an event uh, because of the accumulation of like, I mean, the, the brilliant one is like, I think it's the third chapter or whatever, and they're all describing what the moon was like on the night, and it's all these historical sources, and they all have mm-hmm. a different memory that's of the moon. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And it's like, is... that's when you realize what the book is going to be like. Yeah, uh, that was, for me, the absolute skeleton key to this book. I mean, I try, I even try at this point not to like read the inside flaps um, of books. I try to just open it and start at the first word and know nothing, um, and I would... <laughs> In the first couple chapters, I was just like, I have no fucking clue what's happening. Um, but yeah. this... <laughs> Hold on. Breaking what? news. Breaking news. Some of them are real. Some That's... of them are made up. Who said that? This girl. The person we should always um, listen to. I'm, well, like the Doris Kearns Goodwin quote is real. Um, NPR uh, confirms in this breaking news story from February of 2017 <laughs> that okay. some of them are real. Some All right. Anyway, fake. so Continue. the um, that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> um, that the moon chapter is so incredible, just from like a historical um, point of view, because instead of doing all this like heavy-handed work to say like I am an unreliable narrator, what's the boundary between fiction and nonfiction? Blah 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 blah. It just so gracefully presents like 30 different views on what a sky looks like on one particular night with these like authoritative voices. Um, And it just does all the work 
at, totally outside of the story to set you up to understand and accept that everything you're you're seeing is both based in history, seeing, reading. Everything you're reading is both based in history and completely fictionalized. And we got a bunch of unreliable narrators, most of whom are ghosts. So. And th- there's another part... Um, that does a similar thing. It's much further on in the book. It's um, it's page, if you're reading at home, page 242, where they're talking about whether or not um, Lincoln listened to his doctor as it related to uh, Willie's actual condition on the night that Willie died. And on the night that Willie died, they were having a grand party. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, the doctor assured Lincoln that Willie would recover. That's one citation. The next citation, Lincoln heeded the doctor's advice. Mm-hmm. Third citation, Lincoln failed to overrule the doctor. Fourth citation, electing not to err on the side of caution, the president advised that the party proceed. And then the fifth, the party went ahead with the president's blessing, the little boy suffering horribly upstairs. In that little passage right there, those five examples, you get the very essence of the problems that we have in America today yeah. on on how people believe reporting of events from five different points of view, except for the source themselves, which would be Lincoln in that case. All with the word choice, essentially. Yep. Which is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, can either of you, because I, I can't, can either of you conceive of how George Saunders sat down and was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a story, I'm going to write a novel about Lincoln's dead kid in the Bardo told from the point of view of 150 different sources and ghosts. And I'm going to make it work. Like, how do you decide that? Uh, I mean, I think you're just George Saunders. He's so ambitious. Like, I, that is, that's the word I would always use for him is ambitious. Like, uh, every story that I've read of his is so fucking crazy but also i don't think this is a word i've ever used on the podcast before because it's so corny but he has heart you know like of course he's gonna pick something sentimental and i mean i think what's the the ballsiest choice of this subject is that everyone knows lincoln i mean it's like choosing the most famous person in american history and fictionalizing him in the most crazy ass way but it's also i mean for people who have read or experienced um because i think there's a stage play too i mean this does connect to other famous works like spoon river anthology this is so spoon river have you guys read read that no um so it's really similar so um it it's uh i think it started as like a collection of poems um, and there's, I did them as monologues as like a middle school theater student. Um, so that's my connection to it. But, um, Spoon River Anthology is like, it's a graveyard and each, each dead body just says a poem about their life. Oh yeah. 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 I have some um, vague seventh grade memory yeah, of this. Yeah. Um, and it's also not unlike our town or. I was no. going to say Our Town. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think about that while I was reading it, but not since you said that, of course. Because that's like, she's yeah. in Our Town, she dies, and she's like the newcomer to all the ghosts, and they're like trying to show her around and get her used to the afterlife. Right. Yeah. Or even Winesburg, Ohio, in back. a way. That's right. Yeah, it's a lot like Winesburg, Ohio, too. Yeah. So you have all these like competing points of view and all these relationships in this underworld. And it's also like um, the Neil Gaiman book. Did I think just I read this. You got We didn't read it for this, but uh, Neil the Gaiman wrote... Book. 
Yeah, the Graveyard Book, which is the Jungle Book that takes place in a graveyard, very similar. So this definitely has its roots in other things, and I think George Saunders is very aware of that. I mean, he's it's it all feels very deliberate. Um, but I think, Todd, to answer your question, you just... If you're going to write, if you're such a well-known and popular writer and you're finally going to write your first novel, you just got to go for it. Yeah. You can't, you can't pick a soft, easy, you know, easy thing. You have to, you have to go Plus, all he, the way. He, he's already gotten a MacArthur Genius Grant, so he, he, he right. wasn't worried about money for a couple of years. He could sort of <laughs> kick back. Well, I think, I think, write what I think he he's probably doing fine regardless, do. but, um, yeah. I was also when well, I but you know, this... it is funny. This book, I think, is finally making because because short stories will never be as popular as novels. I I, I feel like uh, when I have talked to people about George Saunders outside of like a literary world, like readers, like real readers or writers, a lot of people. I'm sure he's popular to a certain extent, but. I don't know. I feel like this novel's probably put him into a new category. Like now, he's yeah. going to be a household name. Well, I think he was this before. Is such I mean, an accomplishment and Tenth of December, his last collection of stories was huge. Did very uh, well. Yeah, that yeah. won the National Book Award in I don't know twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, something like that. Um, but I, I, I mean, if this is the book, though, so this is the the interesting thing. This is the book that makes him larger to the outside the sort of uh, literary readership, like into just the culture. Mm-hmm. What a weird book for, for people to really glom onto. It's like, it's, it has a narrative that you got to work for. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's got, um, it's body, it's sexy, it's dark, it's violent, it's weird. And there are three points at which um, someone I know in this house got teary eyed. I'm not going to say it was me. Cause I am, as you know, made of steel, um, mm-hmm. but it's a really, like it's a challenging book. It's only three hundred pages long, and I bet it's fifty thousand words. It's really short, um, but it's like you, you got to work for it to to make this commercial fiction. Um, but it is, you know, it, it, or it has become. It's a big bestseller. So I kind of. Life... I mean, I. Go ahead, Reiner. I was going to say it's kind of. I, I would say you kind of have to work for it, but really. I feel something happens with this book. I, I, I actually thought it, it, you know, it takes about 20 pages for your brain to adjust. Mm-hmm. And then something happened where I was reading it so fast. And I think that's the real brilliance of this book is that it's, he actually makes it pretty effortless, even though it's because there's a huge world building component, right? Like he has right. to build this whole philosophy of how these spirits are here and how they relate to their actual dead bodies and how they relate to the living and, and there's the sort of rules or, or lack of rules. And you pretty early on stop caring about that, which is to me the hardest thing to do as a writer. Like, yeah, that's, true. that's the, true. The reason this book is so ambitious is because of just the, the way it is layered conceptually, but actually when on the page, I tore through it so fast. Like once I got the different perspectives and, and, and you know, the, the, the sort of, the the quotation style your eye starts gl- you know glazing over and you just start looking for the tag of the character that you know who it is because you know there are certain characters that really arrive you know like there are basically four central characters right um and you get to know them and you get to know their individual voices they're each written so fully realized they're each have their own voice their own set of uh uh, you know the actual their own punctuation like mm-hmm. e- each character on the page has their own punctuation their own style of speaking or writing and, and that is so, it becomes so quick like you almost start hearing the voices in your head 
the second you start reading the passage, you don't even have to check the, and that is like, that's just brilliant on such a, a yeah, another level. Um, that's like genius level shit right there. Well, and those yeah. those uh, styles, to be clear, are reflective of the historical eras and education I'm, levels. That's of the those thing. Characters. It's it's, it's remarkable. It's insane. It's not even saying like old timey language. The regional, it's like the 1870s regional, for regional 1890s. Dialects. Yeah. So, so there, like, yes. there's these. I like. I mean, that's the that's the thing that blew me away when I was like a hundred pages in. I had that revelation, Julia, of oh my god, it's not just that the voices are distinct. He's doing regional dialect for yeah. each and every single person. That's nuts. I'm yeah, like, so I, I've done, um, working in so many historic houses, you know, like I've spent a lot of time, let's say an above average amount of time, you know, <laughs> looking at historical documents and getting the, you know, getting used to like ways different things were capitalized or certain shorthands or points of view on religion. I mean, I recognized it instantly and I was like, there's no way, there's no way there's going to be more than these like three or four characters. And then there ends up being like, 200 or something something around that yeah um it's amazing mm-hmm. it's amazing um the other thing that is interesting is that it also sort of harkens back to some of his uh, earlier short stories and i'm thinking specifically of a short story called sea oak i don't know if either of you remember that story or have read it describe it i don't not by name I don't what's titles. It about? Yeah. it's about no. uh a guy who's a stripper and his grandmother dies and then is reanimated and lives inside their house and becomes mean and foul-mouthed. And they got <laughs> to do anything they can to get some no. money. And so uh, dead grandma is, you know, saying, like, I go shake your dick. All, like, all this crazy stuff. And it ends up being, you know, a heartbreaking, loving story about, you know, what happens to a thing that dies that changes in your mind. And in fact... I think it's actually no, I'm gonna breaking. I'm gonna look this up while we while we discuss. I think they actually just optioned it for a movie recently. Um, sea Oak, the short story. Yeah, the short story Sea Oak. It's a really weird short story, but it's you know dead things come back in that short story, hmm. and and they're changed by death, which is one of the big things that happens in Lincoln and the Bardo that. You know, after you die, you're not quite the same person that you were because in, in the case of this, um, the people that are in the Bardo don't even say that they're dead. Um, they just say that, you know, they were in the sick box. And and I won't we won't ruin mm-hmm. um, a plot point that happens um, far into a book that came out a year ago. Um, but there's a point at which being dead makes a difference to these characters and, and things begin to change. Um, but it's, well, there's it, not much plot. I mean, no, there's no it's, plot. It, that's what's funny is that it's basically like Lincoln is mourning his kid, and he comes to visit his son's dead body a couple of times, and the night ends. But the shift is in all these 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 ghost characters' perspectives, and, and right. whether that can or or doesn't does or does not lead them to another phase of the afterlife, and so. It, you, they they each have their own complete individualized journey uh, in the course of this evening uh, because they do well. I, we should say that they recognize Lincoln as the president at some point, like that, and that was a surprising turn for me when I was like, "Oh, he's gonna go there! Like he's gonna create this crazy world, 
you know, where there's these dead characters interacting with a human character. And then they're also going to be able to possess him at a certain point for a little while and know who he is and know some things about the living world. It's like, it's like all the things that you would, you would be told not to do if you were like making a ghost movie or making, you know, (laughs) it's like you have to have clear rules and you can't break them. You can't keep evolving them or changing them. But this you don't care after a certain point. You just want to enjoy, you, you just get so invested emotionally in each one of these, you know, dozen characters that you don't care what, what the rules are. You just want to experience their transitions through those rules, if that makes sense. Breaking, yeah. breaking news. Sea Oak <laughs> is already airing on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> The pilot, the pilot has already aired. Um, Glenn Close is Aunt Bernie, a meek working class woman who dies tragically in a home invasion, and she comes back from the dead. Cool. Jane Close. There you go. So this is it's already received seventeen hundred reviews on Amazon. So we are twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. Behind. Sorry so, about that. <laughs> I think we should talk about um, the emotional aspect of this book, which Todd already referred yeah. to. But another incredibly bold move is just how raw this experience is of Lincoln thinking about, uh, basically, like the presumption of George Saunders to like imagine how Lincoln felt about his son dying. Um, oh, I found it so emotional. Yeah. I mean, I obviously just had a child, so I was thinking about it heavily. But, I mean, it is so emotional, and it goes there right away. I mean, like, first 20, 30 pages, it is already there, and then it just continues to revisit it. And there's just some beautiful writing um, at one point um, from Lincoln's point of view. Um, let's see, yeah. Okay, so this is just so beautiful, I I have to read it. Okay, so he's thinking about his son and, like, trying to get himself to accept that he's dead. I was in error when I saw him as fixed and stable Mm. and thought I would have him forever. He was never fixed, never stable, but always just a passing temporary energy burst. I had reason to know this. Had he not looked this way at birth, that way at four, another way at seven, been made entirely anew at nine... He had never stayed the same, even instant to instant. He came out of nothingness, took form, was loved, and was always bound to return to nothingness. Only I did not think it would be so soon, or that he would precede us. Two passing temporariness developed feelings for one another. Two puffs of smoke became mutually fond. I mistook him for a solidity, and now must pay. Cried my eyes out. Jesus. Cried my eyes out right there. And almost just did it again. Yeah. Oh, yep. so good. So good. And it, it comes, the thing about Saunders is that he'll drop that in and then a page later you're laughing at something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another part um, where one of the ghost characters is told that there's a ghost named, um, named Volman. Who could not consummate his uh, his marriage, and his wife was just a true friend to him. And later on, it's revealed that the wife comes to him had come to his grave at some later point. And it's just this very touching, extraordinarily sad moment where you're 
weeping for the memory of a ghost. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. I don't know how he does it. Um, it's very sad um, and very powerful. And, and to shift like that, I just, uh, but that thing, the bit you just read, that part, I had to step away. Yeah. I had to step away. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, I think the humor, we don't read a lot of funny books on this podcast because humor is so hard. It's so impossible to be truly funny, I think. Um, and it really, it's such like a crazy balance. I think the fact that the book is so funny is what allows it to be so direct in its sadness mm -hmm. as well. Yes. Um, if yes. it went back to a more neutral zone after being so sad, it would feel manipulative or heavy handed. But this just feels like extreme emotion on every level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think Saunders background as a short story writer really serves him well for a book like this, um, because it's not traditionally written as a novel. It doesn't have um, the narrative flow necessarily of a novel. You could read the individual chapters almost as uh, short stories. Um, and, it, you know, he's he's using tricks from short stories to get you in and out of things quickly. He doesn't show the passage of time like you would in a novel. Mm. Um, you know, he's, he's playing with form like you would in a short story. So all these, all these tricks and, and, uh, and um, you know, some would call them gimmicks that you do in surreal short fiction. For a novel of this depth and this weight, um, you know, really serve it exceptionally well. And there are certain mm -hmm. chapters that feel almost like standalone short stories. I mean, another thing that is obviously... Uh, reference for this book is Dante's Inferno um, and there's an incredible scene very very early on where all the ghosts like everything starts to smell really good and they're like oh my god steal yourselves and every ghost <laughs> is visited by its own angels that are like sent yes, to tempt them like to go to bit. heaven or hell right. and it's right. so it's so captivating on its own, you know, it, it's, that's its own like standalone chunk. I think that this in a way is a series of Link short stories just driven by Lincoln and his, uh, his imagined emotions and thoughts. You know what I'm looking forward to is in 20, 30 years from now, when we get uh, Trump in the Bardo, um, thinking uh, back to why, Eric. Why do you have to bring this up? Well, well, this, I'm, but you know, that actually, I, that, that points to something that I did want to bring up that did not occur to me until we started talking about that. But this is something that, uh, I, do you, do, we, there's a, there's a social media Twitter aspect to this book too, when you think about it. Like the idea of all these individual voices sort of lining up in a stream that you're reading. Mm. Very, it, it, and I wonder, I don't think that that was necessarily a conscious choice, but I'm just curious, like, are we as a reading public, like, is part of the reason why we love this novel because it's broken up the way that we are reading these days? Like, this is, I spend, you know, time on Twitter, I spend time on Facebook, and that's what you're doing. You're going through all these individuals' uh, expressions that may contradict one another, but then you're hoping that they sort of form together into some, you know, meaningful whole. And I feel like 
that's kind of a dangerous road for literature to go down as much as I love this book. I'm worried about, uh, you know, I mean, because one of the things that's been concerning me in my own personal life, and then I think it concerns a lot of people culturally, is that our, our attention spans are getting shorter and that our ability to, um, to sort of think something through uh, in a linear fashion for more than five minutes is decreasing. Like we can't, our ability to do so, we feel ourselves sort of fragmenting into our cell phones and in our profiles and all the things that we're constantly sort of aware of. It's very hard to be like present and right there. And in some ways this book feeds that um, and plays off mm-hmm. of that very effectively. But I, I, I don't know. I, I won't, maybe, maybe it, mm. maybe it doesn't go uh, well for the future. <laughs> I don't disagree with you, but also there is already a literary format where people speak one sentence at a time. It's called a play, so I'm not really concerned. Uh, like I, I, I totally see what you're saying, but I mean there are. And I think it's not like this form is new either. You know, this this is a form right. that has existed for hundreds of years. Like, you know, parts of Tristram Shandy are like this. So I think, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying like, as like, I'm just talking about me personally, like I started reading it and glazing over, like my experience of reading this book was very similar to a sort of Twitter feed where, you know, and, and like, you know, you already made the comparisons to the sort of every, you know, current fake news cycle of like, everybody has their own opinion. What, you know, how does this add up to a, you know, one like the idea that there's no one solid perspective that we're all just part of a chorus of like opinions is a very contemporary 2016 yeah. idea or 2016 2017 idea, and I wonder how that uh, you know bodes for the future uh, you know of my reading life and my my own writing life and reading life. Like this fits a listicle sort of social media form, yeah. and I didn't think about that until we started talking about it. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, I think. Uh, I think oral histories, which is basically what this is, it's an oral history, uh, a fake uh-huh. oral history. Yeah, I mean, and I can't take the amount of oral histories that have been written in the last couple of years. Like, that type of think piece has become the, like, BuzzFeed standard. Do you no. know what I mean? I've participated in, like, four oral histories of Boy Meets World, for instance. <laughs> like, the amount of people that, the amount of, uh, like, that was a really cool idea two or three years ago. I'm already sick of that form in, in, online. I don't know. I'm just saying. Like, well, I, I think I, anyway. I th- that was my criticism. Yeah, I think it owes itself also to, in a way, to television um, and not to books because we're so used to um, long form documentaries. So even like you know, like those stupid things from VH1. You know, this is the '80s when we were you know in the '90s when they showed them, or most recently the amazing Vietnam documentary series uh, that uh, was on PBS that was. 10 episodes of four hours long, all told from, you know, 800 different points of view to give you one solid view of the war um, from all sides. I mean, I think that's oftentimes how we consume knowledge now. Um, I don't think it's... But is that how we read our novels? Like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, this is a novel, right? I mean, this isn't a play. This isn't, this is, this is intentionally laid out as a novel and we experience it as novel. We're sitting here reviewing and talking about it as a novel. And I just think that's, fascinating that we're even our novels are sort of bending to that form or these forms well i mean you know real and i i I, I don't know i mean like think about visit from the goon squad by uh uh, jennifer egan it's not like every book subsequent to that suddenly had a powerpoint in the middle of it you know i mean i I think wild invention um 
oftentimes strokes fear of um, trend. Like, oh, this is going to be how all the mm-hmm. books are written. But the fact of the matter is you got to be a fucking genius. And I write books. Right. And I got to tell you, there's no fucking way <laughs> that Gangsterland 3, uh, Sal's Revenge or whatever, is going to be told in 800 points of view using, you know, fake sources. This is, I think, mm-hmm. it's of its time and it's of a kind, but it's not going to... It will surely spawn imitators, but I don't think it is going to necessarily change the way the majority of people write. Now, that being said, Saunders' surrealism, uh, not unlike Amy Bender's surrealism, has fundamentally altered workshop short fiction. Um, Because Uh I can always tell Mm -hmm. when a young writer is reading George Saunders or Amy Bender, and they decide, I'm going to set everything in in my story on the head of a pen, and a fish is going to talk, and that fish is going to be from the past. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake, can't there just be someone named Scott in this story? Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I think it's a good fear that you have writer, but I don't think it's actually, I like, I don't think it's going to bear fruit. I think Twitter is a thing, but it's not replacing this other thing. Yeah. And if someone's going to stick their flag on this plot of land, like let it be George Saunders, you know, like what that reminds me of is David Foster Wallace and his like anxiety based like sentences upon sentences with footnotes you know like i agree with todd let a genius handle it and now no one else can do it (laughs) yeah you know it's funny the one the one critic i will i will only add that the one critic the one person i've talked to that that did not like this book uh, and this was just a couple nights ago because i've been talking about this book a lot lately and the one person who did not like this book she said to me uh i i felt like I had to keep reading through sentiments that I already had understood. So it already mm-hmm. felt too long for her in, you know, in that, like, it, like the actual literariness, the enjoyment of reading the sentiments was secondary to continuing to get to the next ghost or the next point of view, mm-hmm. which uh, yeah, that makes I sense. don't know. It that does feel sense. like, it feels like all, I mean, I feel it. I feel my attention span shrinking and my ability to commit to a book. And part of the reason why I love this book is that it, I read it really fast. Once I, once I got past like the form or once I got into the form, it really worked on my brain in a way that, um, I think has been trained for, uh, you know, and that's, I, I really am not saying like in the sort of doomsday, like, oh, this is where all literature is going. I'm just pointing out that I hadn't occurred to me until we started talking about it, that like, it actually feels like a, a feed in the same way that, um, and it's just my reading habits that I'm commenting on more than anything. Um, and that he's, he wrote into that perfectly. And that's such of the moment. Um, but mm. I, I think it'll obviously last longer than that. And the other thing I wanted to bring up with the reason why I think it will last longer than that is because this book has the other the the thing that I kept thinking about is Walt Whitman because this book has this the almost an identical project in mind as Song of Myself um Walt Whitman's famous poem this I it's like I mean obviously there's some Whitman comparisons because of the time period and because of the Lincoln worship but for me it was really in the um this book's democratic heart the way that these these characters are they're all unique and they're all uniquely themselves, but then they also are yearning to be a collective, mm-hmm. um, this human collective, um, a racial collective, a gender collective, a national collective. There's a period in the, like, I feel like the, the real climax of the book is the series of ghosts jump into Lincoln mm-hmm. 
they all possess him at the same time. And they all sort of talk about that experience. And, and you're not really sure where that's going to lead. And it's actually never quite clear. But but they all grow from this experience of sharing a human body, all these, these you know, dead American souls, hundreds of them sharing this, this presidential body alive body and that's so much like what Whitman was doing in his poetry you know he'd spend these pages and pages these epic catalogs of all the various Americans that he had met or that he could imagine and then he would announce them and and recognize them and then count them part of himself mm -hmm. like they would they would become they would become the Americans that represent who he is becoming and who he is. So it's like at once he would be identifying their differences from him their private and individual lives but then include them in himself through the act of writing the poem um, and it's like such an american worldview this uh, you know that, that we're all different and that we all deserve recognition for those differences and yet that there's this common project that can bring us together this like project of self-realization and self-governance it's like in order to achieve your own peace to uh you know move on from the bardo or recognize yourself you have to look outwards and learn to accept all these other selves that are also involved in the same project uh, of their own self-realization and like until you can do that until you can have empathy and until you can actually like be in their lives and care for another person you're never going to be able to realize any of your own you know self-actualization or spiritual ascension as in this book hmm. um, and that shit was like today so we are all and, like, lincoln yeah yeah basically you know and but you know and i feel like there's so many there's there's so many ways you could take that like i mean i'm sort of taking on this philosophical poet poetry level with whitman but like you could also take that very politically you know that, mm -hmm. that lincoln sort of represented this unifying force historically um because of his ability to to be a vessel for people and to lead them um and and to be strong on certain things and like the way he resists his son in some moments, like, you know, that, that passage that you were reading, Julia, I, I, I think it's mm -hmm. that same passage. That's almost a dialogue between the dead son and him and like trying to convince him to keep caring about his dead son because it'll, you know, it's better for the ghosts and for him to like insist on like, nope, I have to be here for the living people. It's like, you know, that's a leadership presidential thing yeah. to do, uh, to let go of your own personal emotions, your own son. And yeah, that, yeah, that ain't happening anytime soon, by the way. <laughs> you don't think of... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're living in it. If you want to talk about someone who can't release their own personal emotions and do something for the greater good, uh, we're living in it at this moment. We are in the Bardo. The Magnolia.